This week, um, the, t- the, the topic I was giving was suffering. And as San Diego Chargers fans, most of us are well acquainted with the topic. By God's great sovereign sense of humor, um, I also had a dentist appointment this week, some more suffering, and then I also got sick, and I had a fever, and so it was just a week of some at least mild suffering as a primer as I was preparing to jump into this message. Um, The reason we're talking about suffering is um, we're in the midst of a series, we're finishing a series called Questions Answered, and and we're taking a look at... Uh, What does God have to say? What does the Bible, what does Christianity say to these significant questions? So here's what we've we've, we've talked about so far. How did we get the Bible? Why is the God of the Bible so violent and angry? Doesn't science disprove the Bible? And last week, what does God really think about homosexuality? On top of that, we thought we'd finish it with, why does God allow so much suffering? This is a real question, Um, Many people, many philosophers have struggled with this issue. Some Christians have even called this the most difficult issue for Christianity to answer. How can a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God allow so much suffering? All of us in this room have been touched by this question, right? We've all felt, jokes aside... We've all felt the sting of hurt and pain in our families, maybe in our own lives. People in this church that we know are are battling depression and abuse and homelessness, disease. That's a real thing. And we all have access to that hurt. And so at some point, we begin to wrestle with these questions. On top of that, if we look at the news... ISIS and Boko Haram, bombings in Paris, Beirut, Nigeria, Syria, Iraq, refugee crisis, with all the banter about refugees, which I find to be exhausting, we just recognize there are millions, without exaggeration, millions of people around the world without a home, and not just home on the street, literally like running for their lives because of conflict. These are all the results of moral evil. That's a philosophical term. People doing bad things to people. There's also natural evil, the philosophical term. So brush fires in Western Australia, earthquakes in Afghanistan, a cyclone in Yemen, that's the last week. And sometimes moral and natural evil combined. So in Brazil, some some dams burst and, and wiped out an entire community. More recently for us, we see this are more closer to home, is the levees in New Orleans that broke and flooded and killed a ton of people. There's multiple layers to this issue of evil and of suffering. And suffering is real. How can there be a good, all-powerful God in the face of such deep misery and pain? That's the philosophical question. And we're going to spend some time on that this morning. And then there's the spiritual or moral question, which might be even more pressing for us. Because you're here. You came to a church. How can I trust a God who allows me or others to hurt this much? How can I trust him? How can we love and worship God when he allows or perhaps even ordains us 
to suffer so much. That's what we want to climb into this morning. Let me pray for us as we go forward, and we'll jump in. God, you're good, and, uh, and I'm just a man. I'm just a guy who's trying to come before you with this text and with these ideas and these thoughts, and I just pray for clarity. I pray that your spirit will work and move in our hearts. I pray that that intellectual question of how can it be, how is it possible that you can even exist, that we can address those this morning, God, teach us about that. And then more so, God, teach us even, even more How can we actually believe you're good? How can we worship you and trust you? Teach us to delight in you, Father, this morning. Please be here and work in our hearts. I pray in your name. Amen. So for this first philosophical part, I'm going to present three objections. These are common objections that that fall along these lines of this philosophical question. And they'll be up on the screen, so you won't have to write them down. You You can write them down, but you won't have to remember them necessarily. So the first objection... Typical objection on this topic. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, and good God allow suffering in the world? Since there is so much suffering and evil, a good, all-knowing, and powerful God cannot exist. This is the conclusion of David Hume in the 18th century. Many people have gotten to this idea. This God, who is these things, cannot be because of the suffering I see. And people would argue Christianity has to answer this question. Well, first, let me say that every worldview actually has to, to wrestle with the problem of evil. Here are some responses of other worldviews. Hindus would say that any evil that befalls us is simply our reaping the results of the moral actions that we had done in a past life. They believe there is, actually is no good or evil and that once you rise to that higher level, and are self-realized, you can rise above such dualistic notions. So you're getting something from what you deserve before, but reality is you can just rise above and turn it all off. Buddhists would also encourage you to become your best self so you can simply learn to deal with the suffering. So there's no answer. There's no justice. There's no hope. Simply learn to just kind of look the other way. If you don't believe in God, if you're a naturalist, A godless evolution would say that natural selection depends on death, destruction, violence of the strong over the weak. So suffering is therefore natural. It's normal. So on what basis does an atheist then judge the natural world to be horribly wrong or unfair or unjust? The non-believer in God has no good basis to ask this question. If you don't believe there is a God, then he cannot be unjust. There's no justice. None of these worldviews give us a satisfying answer for justice over evil or offer true purpose in suffering. They're, they're hopeless. If a person looks at evil and suffering and responds with outrage, then they are presupposing that there is good, there is a justice, there is a standard. For instance, on a very small level, when you were in school and you went to go take a test, and the kid next to you got a 90, and you were like me, and you got like an 80, or 75, or 70, there was a standard of 100 somewhere, right? That's a standard. The reason I was able to evaluate this and say, I got this, because a standard exists. If there is no God, where did we get this standard of goodness by which to ask this question? 
The problem of evil is a problem for everyone, and it's at least as big a problem for non-belief in God as for belief. It's a mistake to think that if you abandon belief in God, it somehow makes the problem of, easier, the problem of evil easier to handle. It doesn't. Christianity argues there is a God who is all-powerful and is all-knowing and is so much better. He is so good, we can't even begin to imagine how good he is, even in the face of tremendous suffering and evil. So to the first objection, I would say the conclusion is wrong. He can exist. He's just better than we can actually begin to imagine. Let's look at objection number two. So if God exists, this good God I'm talking about, why is there so much evil? There can't be any reason why God would allow so much suffering in this world. To say that there can't be any reason is problematic. We are not God. We do not know everything. So to say that there can't be any reason is to put ourselves above God and to judge him. Just because maybe it's hard for us to understand a good reason in particular instances, which will always be the case. When we suffer acutely, it is very rare that we will see a true purpose. But just because we can't place our finger in the moment on that reason in the short term does not mean that there cannot be one. In Romans 11, it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. We may not know the reasons, but God does. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. And so powerful that we can be confident that good can come out of evil. If you think back to the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him. And to ease their consciences, they decided to simply sell him into slavery. And he ended up in Egypt. They intended harm for their brother. He later was thrown into prison. But by God's grace, he rose up to be the second in charge of the entire country. And later, through Joseph, he saved thousands of lives because of his position of influence. It never would have happened without being thrown into slavery. Like, that's a big deal. And Joseph even told his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's a small example we know from Scripture. And obviously we don't have time to unpack every example we can. But there's a greater example. There's a far greater example. The most powerful example is the cross. The greatest tragedy that we can imagine happened. And sometimes we skip over it as Christians. We start at Christmas, he came, and then we land at Easter, he rose again, and it's awesome. And those are good things. But God the Father redeemed the greatest tragedy in the history of mankind to become the greatest opportunity for hope and salvation and redemption for the world. 
With the cross, when Jesus died, no one saw how anything good can come, come of it. The Son of God, sinless, righteous, perfect. He was killed and deserted by God the Father, and the wrath of God was poured out onto this perfect God-man. And yet the Father foresaw that this great evil would lead to the greatest good. The Son died and rose again, conquering death to the glory of God. So the worst tragedy in history brought about the most good of anything we could even imagine. To simply say that there cannot be a good reason for why God would allow suffering does not mean that there cannot be. Objection number three. Evil people get away with it all the time. Certainly God doesn't consider that fair. How can you just stand there and do nothing about it? Why doesn't he step in and deal with the evil in the world? How long, God? How long will you wait Where are you, God? We've all prayed this. Psalm 73, David cries out, God, the wicked are winning. I'm over it. The raiders are doing so much better than we are. (laughs) It's even partially true right now, but I'm actually not a Chargers fan, so I'm just empathizing and being with you. Um, It's funny that we always want justice for other people, right? But not for ourselves, Like, when we get cut off, or when we see that person do the horrible thing on the street, we're like, where's the police officer? And yet, when that light goes from yellow to red, and you still got a little ways before the intersection, and you blow right through because, you know, I'm in a hurry, we're not going, please, police officer, I want justice. Where are you, police officer? The Christian response to this question is that no one gets away with anything. Ultimately, the Bible says there will be a day when God comes and makes all things right and he will hold people responsible for every evil that has been done, including us. Justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied. See, there's a meta-narrative to the work of God. So there's this gigantic story arc that began before time and God somehow, this is how incredibly big God is, God works every detail of every person always. He works every thought and choice and wrong motivation, every evil and every good. He works together in this gigantic story arc, this meta-narrative. It's called redemptive history. He is sovereign, and he does use every single thing to accomplish this thing, that at the end of time, we will stand with him. And every person will marvel at his incredible wisdom, his incredible patience and long-suffering that he's shown everyone. And even in the midst of the hardest and darkest sorrows that some of you I know have experienced, we will glory in the God who is before us. And that is great story. That's true. That is what the Bible says. We cannot always understand what's happening right now. In the short term, we don't always get it, but we have confidence in this God. Paul David Tripp wrote, um, the answer to what is God doing right now is always accomplishing his plan. There are times when that will hurt so bad 
There are moments. There are seasons. There are diagnoses. There are phone calls in the middle of the night when you will not want to believe that. But it's true. And he is that good. We do not need to shrink against these questions as Christians. Criticizing God for not doing something right now is like reading half of a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot or storyline right then and there. We are not the author. The chapter we're in is not the main point of the story. It is a piece of this gigantic, beautiful puzzle. So our answer to these objections, yes, there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God who does exist. He does have a reason for being patient for everything he does, despite all the pain and suffering in the world. And he will make it right. I'm from Ventura, about three hours north of here. Um, and my, my, one of my favorite things to do when I go home, especially when I was living on the East Coast, I would go home, and the night before, I would fly home to dark, boring Pennsylvania. No offense. Um, it was rough. Uh, well, the night before, I would fly home. I would go out to the Ventura Pier. And the Ventura Pier is about a third of a mile long. It's a wooden pier. It's one of the longest wooden piers in the coast of California. And I loved it there because, especially at night, it, typically you'd be alone or close to alone, and it was quiet. And one of the, the cool things that happens on this pier is if you stand really still, you can feel the pylons shift with every wave. The first time you feel it, it scares the goodness out of you. And I remember uh, one Christmas, I got my sisters who live uh, across the country to come with me, and I forced them to be quiet. And one of my sisters was like, I want to talk. I'm like, no, be quiet. You're 16 years older than me. You can deal with 30 seconds of silence. And, and I had, I'm like, just speak, like, be still and feel it shift and like, have this moment because I love this moment. And the reason I love that moment is because I feel small in that moment. Just that tiny, almost unnoticeable shift under my feet. I feel so small. And my sister said, well, I like feeling big. <laughs> and I said, that's why we don't always get along. <laughs> when we stand before God and we declare, you can't exist. You can't be good. You can't have a plan. You can't possibly hold everyone accountable. What is happening right now is not okay. We make the mistake of thinking that our God is small and that we are big. He's not small. We, and we are not the center of the universe. It would be really sad if this is as good as it gets, right? God is the center. God is not small. The beautiful thing about the Christian God is he is also not afraid of our objections. He welcomes them. Throughout scripture, he welcomes Abraham's, David's, Jonah's, Habakkuk's. Read Habakkuk. God says, I'm going to do this thing. It's very short. You can get through it. And, and, and he's, God says, I'm going to judge Israel with this pagan nation. Habakkuk goes, you can't do that. 
that's not who you are, God. And God's like, okay, let's do this. Let's have this conversation. And they have this conversation about the character of God. And at the end, there's this three-verse psalm when Habakkuk says, like, you've prepared me to take on the worst thing I can imagine, and I'm okay with it. We are small, and he is great. Um, so with this moment, I want to pivot. Because to me, that's, the, that's my version of answering the philosophical questions. And, and I will freely admit to you, I am not wired for the philosophical aspect. It's just not how I'm programmed. Um, if you want to read some more, there's a great book by Tim Keller, The Reason for God, if you want to dabble. If you want to jump in the deep end, this Christian apologetic, John Frame's apologetics to the glory of God are incredible. But the thing that I get excited about is the second question. Not how can God exist, but like how do we actually worship and trust that God? That's what gets me fired up. I started to bleed into it a little bit there at the end. I said, wait for it. Wait for the moral part later. Um, so we're going to look at 1 Peter and read a few verses. 1 Peter is written to people who are going through an exile. This should sound familiar. Because their faith, because their political views were not the same as the people whose country they're in, they were forced to flee the city they were from in the Middle East and find refuge. They were refugees. First Peter is written to refugees. I really like refugees. Have you gotten that yet? Um, I think we all should, but we're not going to go there right now, so I don't know if we have time for that. Um, First Peter is written to exiles who, for their faith, had to flee, and Peter is writing them words of comfort. And he begins in verse 3, and he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Again, quickly, there are plenty examples of deep, deep suffering, even in this room. There's a lady in our church who recently hurt her back, and for at least three months is going to have to have therapy where she can't, literally can't do anything else but have her back worked on. You know how bad back pain hurts? To be immobilized for months and there's a boy in our congregation who got a diagnosis a few years ago that, that none of us could ever imagine. And the suffering for him and his parents to know that that will be there. 
It's real suffering. How can we trust God? How can we tell our friends to trust and worship God when he allows us to hurt this much? Well, the first thing I think we do is we have to remember the gospel. I think this is the right answer to everything we go through. When you're little, it's always Jesus is always the right answer. And I think for us, it's remember the gospel. Here's the thing. For Christianity, Christianity is the only religion where God comes and suffers himself. That's radical. Christianity doesn't say, oh, suffering doesn't exist. It says it exists so much that God actually came and did it. The moment Jesus showed up to earth, we think of suffering as on the cross, and it is, but even the incarnation during this Christmas season, remember, for Jesus to show up here as God and to be limited to an infant in poopy diapers, it's cute. It's also humbling. Are you kidding me? He's God. He probably had a gnarly diaper rash a few times. God had diaper rash. Like, that's terrible, right? You think about that. That's humiliating. And he was fully God. His entire life, he tolerated the disciples. He, he just lived a normal life for 30 years in a, in a really, like, pretty primitive civilization compared to where we are now. I'm sure it wasn't always fun. He was ridiculed by the religious elect. God was ridiculed by the pastors and theologians and law keepers of the day. He had to learn to walk and to speak and to grow up. And then dying on the cross, suffering and agony, not just physically, but in a way we can never know. A cosmic, eternal separation between the Father and Son for just that moment. We need to remember the gospel, and we need to, to remember that Jesus knows what it means to suffer. And he identifies with us. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. When we suffer, run to him first and last and always. The gospel tells us that we can come to God and beg him. It invites us to run to the throne of God. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness, and he invites us to come. He is never bothered by our prayers. He does not grow weary of our cries for help because when we ask God for help, we are saying, you are God, I am not, and I need help. And he says, I know, that's why I saved you, because I am God, and you are not, and you need help. And that is the picture of the gospel. He loves it when we ask for help. He's not like us. We get tired of those asks. Those, you know, the first ask, hey, can you help me do this thing? You're like, yeah, I can do that. The second ask, well... Maybe. The third ask, like, all right, you're getting annoying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do that. Other people do that. Um, God's not like us. He is stronger. He has overcome sin and death that he can then stoop down to our level always and pick us up and do all the work to heal us and to mend our broken hearts. He identifies with us. 
And he secures for us a future. He identifies with us. He also wins. We can look forward to the resurrection. Peter said in verse uh, 3 that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because Jesus suffered and died, he's able to identify with us. But it doesn't just stop there. He's not there like, yeah, that's really hard. Praise God it doesn't end there. He also has overcome. Jesus did not just succumb to death. He delivered himself up to death, knowing that he would face the worst death imaginable and knowing that he would overcome. He did not just learn to accept it. He conquered death. The resurrection of Christ is a foretaste of the final salvation for us. New heavens and a new earth. In the book of Revelation, John saw heaven coming down. And this means that God is preparing a spiritual heaven that will not just be compensation for our lives. Like, you know what? It was really hard for you. Like, here's a harp. Here's some clouds. Now go somewhere else and have fun. God doesn't say that to us. Rather, the resurrection is restoration to a better life. It's our world. It's, it's your body. It's your loved one's It's this place renewed and redeemed and restored, unspoiled, pure, perfect, unfading in the presence of God himself. The gospel means that we have hope and the best is yet to come. It reminds us of our great God who has secured for us an inheritance of hope. Remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus knows what it means to suffer, but he also has overcome and has secured that victory for you. So therefore, believe. Believe that God is at work. In verse 6 and 7, Peter says that God is always at work to refine us and build up our faith. God is always at work in our life accomplishing his plan, building up our faith. And sometimes that means that the reason we're going through some hard stuff is for us to grow. What I find more compelling than that is in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about they're in this situation where they thought they were going to die. And they questioned even life. And they, they, Paul said, we turn to God and we just begged him for our lives. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the reason that happened is so we can comfort you in your affliction. God is at work in you, not just for you. Remember that I'm not the center of the world thing? God is at work in us, but also through us. He will meet you in the darkest of times, but he does that so you can meet others in their darkness. I find this so compelling. I talked to, to one guy in the church this week who said that when he, he was in this really dark time, he would call a friend and they would just cry on the phone together. They'd just cry. That's the church. That's what God wants for us, not just to only cry for each other, but to be there for each other. That in those moments, 
that we can point each other back to Christ, that we can offer hope to people who don't even know Christ, who say there cannot be a God, and we can come to them graciously and simply say, I feel your pain right now. I can't imagine. And perhaps when it's appropriate to say, there is hope. May we never be the people who wag into other Christians these short answers of, well, God's always accomplishing something. You just need to believe. No, God trains our hearts so that we can come alongside of people and say to them, I can't imagine what you're going through, but I love you and I'm here for you. How are you doing today? How can I, how can I love you more? And when it's appropriate to share the hope and the love, not with short, trite answers and Facebook posts, but to crawl into the suffering they're going through like Jesus did for us, to put your arms around them and perhaps to bring them up out of it. Sometimes when we hurt, we get so consumed with, this is not what I wanted for my life, that we miss what God is trying to do through us. There are many objections to why, how can there be a God? How can this God exist? Suffering and evil is real and is often overwhelming. But our God is bigger, and he is better, and he is far more wonderful than we can even begin to imagine. Trust him. It will hurt. It will cost you in the short run. But Jesus has conquered death and he invites us to know him. He empowers us to overcome even when it won't make sense. And he invites us to delight in him. He is that good. Our God is that good that he is worth trusting no matter what we might face. Let's pray. God, we need you. I need you so much, God, and, and I believe. I believe in you, Lord. And yet I, I confess that. I, I need help with my unbelief. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would live a perfect life, suffer constantly and especially at Calvary, but die and rise again. Father, the gospel, because you have conquered sin and death, it radically changes everything so we can point back to Calvary and find hope, that we can go to you with confidence, that you've been there before, and that we have a hope in a future. Help us to have a foot firmly planted in heaven as we look forward to what you have for us and a foot firmly planted here as we interact on a day-to-day -day basis with those in and around our church. And we offer to them this incredible hope. You are that good. You are all-knowing. You are powerful. And we delight in you. We pray in your name. Amen.